Thanks for joining us in our study of the book of Joshua. This Old Testament book presents a theological history of God as the sovereign promise maker and promise keeper who brings to pass all his gracious purposes. It calls Christians to live in light of the gospel blessings secured for them by Jesus, the better Joshua. Cornerstone exists to proclaim and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people complete in him. Let's go ahead and turn together to Joshua 24. We are finally here. We have reached uh, the last passage in the book of Joshua. Uh, We will be together one more time on Joshua. We'll kind of do a recap next week. Um, But we are here at the last five verses, Joshua 24, 29 through 33. And for those who uh, have been along for the ride, it's kind of a sad day. Um, Not because we despair, not because we're without hope, uh, but because we watch as Joshua exits the stage of history. Um, He has faithfully taken us through the conquest of Canaan. He has, uh, with help of Eliezer, allotted the land to the tribes of Israel. And all along the way, we've watched him be a shining example of what it means to work out your faith, to say you have faith and have works that match it, the kind of faith that was well-defined so well by the epistle of James. And as we say goodbye to this man, Joshua, we rightly mourn the loss of of a good saint who has gone before, who trusted. But that's not really what this whole passage is about. This probably doesn't come as a surprise to many of you, but the book of Joshua has never really been about Joshua at all. We've said this before. And even here at the end, this even now still isn't really all about Joshua. The very fact that he shares his obituary column with two other guys uh, helps us to see that the life and death of Joshua is not the point of focus for the reader. That's not what's most important here. You'll see this as we look at it. So let's do that. Let's take a look at 24, 29 through 33. I'll read it. We'll pray and we'll get going. Verse 29. And after these things, Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years old. And they buried him in his own inheritance at Timnath-serah, which is in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel. As for the bones of Joseph, which the people of Israel brought up from Egypt, they buried them at Shechem, in the piece of land that Jacob bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of money. It became an inheritance of the descendants of Joseph. And Eliezer, the son of Aaron, died, and they buried him at Gibeah, the town of Phinehas' son, which had been given him in the hill country of Ephraim. Let's pray together. Lord, we, we pray along with the psalmist this morning and say that forever, Your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Lord, your faithfulness endures to all generations. Even now we see this and you've established the earth and it stands fast. By your appointment they stand this day for all things are your servants. If your law had not been our delight, Lord, we we would have perished in our affliction. We will never forget your precepts for by them you've given us life. We're yours. Save us. If we have sought your precepts, Lord, and the wicked lie and wait to destroy us, but we consider your testimonies. We have seen a limit to all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. Use it today then, Father, to bind our wandering hearts to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 
Last week, not this week, but the last week, I had the wonderful opportunity to serve my country in our judicial system um, by serving on a jury for two days, for a Wednesday and Thursday. Yes, I can hear the light groans going on. Yes, jury duty. Um, Jordan heard about this, and he kind of gave me his take on it, which I, I haven't forgot. I thought it was so helpful. He's like, jury duty is a great thing. It's a good thing to serve your country. It's good to support our democracy, and I totally agree. But it always comes at the most inconvenient times, uh, and I have found that to be true. Um, as a juror, though, you know this, again, that you're trying to hear the plaintiff and the defendant and look at the evidence and to make a judgment call and to make sure that you try to exact judge justice and try to make sure that you make a call. And if you've ever done this, or perhaps if you've ever watched something like Law and Order, you know that when you're listening to testimonies of every person involved in the case, and that's really important. But you also know that's not enough. You want to see the evidence. You want to make sure when something is entered into evidence that you can see it, understand it, and see that what it does is corroborates the story of the witnesses. So when they say such and such happened, you look at the evidence and you see, ah, yes, we, we believe as much as we can that that is exactly what happened. Um, but again, in this case that we looked at, we saw and heard first from the plaintiff. They claimed that she had been harassed from some different letters um, that, that were threatening her. And this witness and the lawyer that represented her told the story, helped us understand what was going on, and showed us that was trying to convince us that it was a harassing situation, that this could really affect people deeply. And as the jury, we, we carefully listened along and, and heard it, but then we moved on to the defendant's witness. Um, he too sounded very believable, very plausible, and uh, had a pretty convincing story of what was going on. In the end, all of us as jurors, though, we weren't convinced one way or the other. What we wanted to see was the evidence, was the proof. We wanted to look at those letters that they said were sent out that were harassing her. We wanted to see them and make sure that we could understand that the plaintiff claimed this and to see if that was actually true. And once we looked over these letters as, as a group of jurors, we read them completely and we looked at the laws concerning such letters uh, and it became clear to us that there was no harassment. No law had been broken and so we found the defendant to be innocent. Oftentimes, you and I are like us as jurors. What I mean is when it comes to trusting people or places or things in life, we're willing to carefully listen and hear the claims, and we want to hear as much as we can to listen to the witnesses, but what we really want to see is the evidence. Give me the proof that what you're saying is actually true. We want to see the proof that the story can be corroborated with what they're saying is true. Today, we are looking at more than just the story of Joshua. He's dead. We're looking at something more than that. It's more than just a witness statement about this. We're looking at the evidence that all has been saying the same thing. This evidence is showing us all that Joshua said is true. We're looking at what others said about his death after he's dead and gone. And it will give us further proof that these claims that he's making are right. In the book of Joshua, we've been reading a well-crafted narrative, right? showing us and meant to teach us several things, but not specifically only about history, but to teach us about God. In other words, the events that history has recorded, Joshua writes down specifically for one purpose, that we might better understand God, not that we would just better understand the facts of history. Because truly, the true facts of history tell us the story of God. 
Now, however along the way, our author has used all kinds of different things, not just narrative. If you remember this, he's used things like ancient war poetry. He's used spy narrative reports. He's even uh, recorded down some conquest itineraries. We read through these huge tribal lists, the boundaries of where the tribes were divided up into, even some covenant ceremony reports. And the list goes on and on, actually. There's several different things. The author is going to wrap up the book of Joshua with another type of literature, a burial notice, or something we probably are more, con- like we're more familiar with would be called the obituary. It's kind of like that. It briefly states that a person has died. It may include a few details about the person, and it normally states where the person has been laid to rest. Now, as far as what things are included in the burial notice and what things are not, it's really up to the one who's writing the burial notice. When a burial notice is included in a story like this one, though, we ought to pay attention, and we need to ask the question, why was this burial notice given to us? What is it supposed to do? And why with these specific details was it was included? The particular details in this burial notice, if we are good readers, they will give us the clues to tell us why this thing is included at all. So let's first take a look here at these, first five ver- these last five verses and see if we can understand the burial notice itself, but then why it was included. The first question I think we ought to ask ourselves is this, and this may seem like a no-brainer, whose burial notice is this? Again, it may seem like a no-brainer, um, but it may not be exactly what you think. This is a burial notice for the leadership team of Joshua and Eliezer. There are some other details that we'll point out in a moment, but take a look at verse 29. After these things, Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years old. And they buried him in his own inheritance at Timnath Sarah, which is in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. Now look down at 33, the last one. And Eliezer, son of Aaron, died. And they buried him at Gibeah, the the town of Phinehas, his son, which had been given him in the hill country of Ephraim. Now, I think we forget that the whole story of Joshua has actually been let out, not by Joshua alone, but that Eliezer has been by his side the whole time. If you're, if, again, if we look at this, you'll see that he's been engaged in conquest with them. He's been the high priest serving in the tabernacle. He has helped him in many different activities. But most importantly, if you go back to chapter 14, Eliezer was the one who was the head of allotting the land to the tribes. Let me read verse 1 of chapter 14 for you. Notice who's the first one here. These are the inheritances that the people of Israel received in the land of Canaan, which Eliezer the priest and Joshua the son of Nun and the heads of the fathers' houses of the tribes of the people of Israel gave them to inherit. Eliezer and Joshua are a leadership team, much like we think of Moses and Aaron, going alongside doing these things, serving the Lord together. And in God's plan for Israel's leadership, Joshua and Eliezer were to work together to lead the congregation in obedience throughout the conquest and right into the land. So it's important that from the very beginning, we see that this is not just Joshua's burial notice. Because if we do, the rest of it kind of doesn't make sense. And so we see here, it's far more than that. It's actually the whole team. It's Joshua and Eliezer's together. Now, why does that matter to us? Well, it matters because what it does is more than just one person. It brings finality and completion to a time period, not just to one single person. By including this together, we're seeing him make a marker, a signal to show that an era is actually over and coming to an end. We can easily take a look at Joshua as the great military leader 
and be distracted with all his accomplishments. And that's good to like remember all the things he did, an excellent leader. These are excellent things. But it can easily direct, distract us away from the truth is that he includes Eliezer to show us that we are seeing more than just one person go away, but actually an entire era is ending with this. Now, we've watched Moses and Aaron die, and both of them passed on their leadership to God by God's command to Joshua and Eliezer. Moses, <coughs> me, <coughs> Moses had led the people out of Egypt and, of course, into the wilderness and into the beginning of the conquest on the east side of the Jordan, right? That's all what Moses has been doing along this way. Joshua then is given the task of leading throughout the conquest and allotting the land to the people of Israel. But at this point, God does not command that Joshua and Eliezer hand off their leadership to somebody else. We don't see a specific one named. God does not command them to look for someone or anything like that. Instead, I don't know if we, we kind of recognize this, but actually chapter 22, chapter 23, chapter 24, the last couple times we've been together, what we're actually seeing is Joshua formally hand off leadership and all these tasks to corporate Israel. He's actually putting it in the hands of the people, the individual tribes, as each family must choose to serve Yahweh and possess the land that they've been given. By writing the burial notice then, as a leadership team, we are seeing that this is signaling the end of an era. So I think that's the first thing to ask, make sure who we know who this is about. But the next thing we should ask is, what are all the important parts here that we should be paying attention to? I have to admit, the first time I read this through, I was like, how am I going to preach a whole sermon out of this burial notice? What is this about? But I came, there's, there's four things here that continually kept rising to the top I think we need to pay attention to. So let me give them to you. The first thing we need to see is success in the conquest. Joshua, think about this. A military man surrounded by fighting and engagement and death survives to the age of 110 years old. I mean, this is a sign of blessing. Old age is not a given, especially if you specialize in war. God has graciously saved his life all the way to this point. And that's not all. Littered throughout this, in this little passage right here, we see the result of very many military successes. He had taken the land that God had given to him. They had successfully fought against all of Canaan and won. But we all understand, because we've read the rest of Joshua and we've heard it all the way over and over and over again, that it wasn't Joshua's success. Not really. It wasn't his to, to claim the victory. We know who it was for real. So that's the first thing. Success in the conquest is pointing to somebody else. The second thing, though, is actually a, a term that we, the, the end here calls Joshua. If you look in verse 29, it's the servanthood of Joshua or the servanthood of Israel as well. Take a look. In verse 29, Joshua is called the servant of the Lord. Nowhere else in this book so far has he been called this. It's not until he's dead and gone that someone else writes this as his epitaph, that he was a servant of the Lord. Now with that title comes a great deal of meaning. Up throughout this time we've seen it used, but only of Moses so far. And now we see it called of Joshua. There's lots that we can hang on this, but I just want to throw one thing out there, the thing we ought to highlight here. Joshua is not the head honcho. Joshua is not the big deal here. Joshua is called a servant. Think about that in and of itself. That means that his very title points out that he submits to the will and power and leadership of somebody else. He's not the head honcho. Someone greater than he is actually the head honcho. 
Joshua led God's people faithfully. And if, with success, I might add. But verse 31 shows us something else. It makes it clear that the people didn't look to Joshua to serve, but look to, to Yahweh during Joshua's time and for even time periods after that. Joshua didn't point to himself. The people's obedience didn't point to Joshua. And as a result, in another way, we actually see that the people are servants of Yahweh and they served him faithfully. As a result of his leadership, it led to them saying, we understand who the true king is. And so they served him. Joshua isn't the one pointing to himself, all-important, big leader. He's a subject like you and I are in the kingdom of heaven. He serves the one who went before and drove out the Canaanites. He serves the one who gave them possession of the land. He serves the one who gave them victory. His whole life points to someone else, the Lord God Yahweh of Israel. So we ought to be careful here. We ought to appreciate Joshua, but to worship the God of Joshua. So that's the second thing I want you to notice. The third thing here is the faithfulness to previous generations. What in the world is Joseph doing here? I mean, if any of you know where we're at, the last time Joseph was alive was back at the end of Genesis, and we're in Joshua. What in the world is he doing here? Some of you have been kind of waiting for this. Why in the midst of Joshua and Eliezer's burial notice is Joseph getting any sort of attention? Or at least Joseph's bones. Like, what's the deal? If you look back at Genesis 50, 24 and 25, Joseph, on his bed, makes his descendants do something weird. It's weird. He makes them swear to take his remains to the land of Canaan. I want you to go take this back. Why? Hebrews eleven twenty two tells us. Of all the things that could be said about Joseph, the weirdest thing of all that they chose, for some reason, at least to us, he chooses here in Hebrews 11 is to point out that Joseph believed in faith and had his bones carried to Canaan, to the promised land. It shows us that Joseph had faith. Joseph knew the promise that was made to his great-grandfather, Abraham. He knew that Abraham had been, promising the land of Can- had been promised the land of Canaan. And here is Joseph in Egypt, dying, never seeing these promises come true. Here he is in, in the middle of Egypt, waiting, and yet he tells his relatives to embalm him and to make sure they bring him to Canaan because he knows, he knows that it's going to happen. He knows the promises that were made to Abraham, and he knows that that's what's going to end up happening. And in this act, he declares his faith in God by saying, I don't want to be buried in Egypt. I, I want to be buried in the place that God is going to give to Israel. I want to be buried in the promised land. It wasn't a decision about right or wrong. It wasn't bad to be buried in Egypt whatsoever. But he was so trusting that God was faithful that he said, I'm going to ask for something weird. Hey, guys, make sure you take my bones and take them. Whenever that time comes to take me to Canaan, take me there because that's where I want to be back at. I want to be led, laid to rest there. Think about this for a minute from, from our perspective. They were not getting ready to leave Canaan for Canaan anytime soon. In fact, they're about to go from being on Pharaoh's side to a generation that did not know him. And what happens then? 400 years of slavery? I mean, it wasn't like they were getting ready to pack up their bags and go back to Canaan. They were 400 years away from God sending Moses. 400 years. I mean, maybe some of us might live to see 100. That's a long time to keep some dead guy's bones hanging around. 
I mean, in hopes that you'd be freed from slavery someday so that you can be victorious and lay him to rest in a place that right now is inhabited by people who are hostile to you. And that was his hope. When we read Joshua 24, 32, it goes like this. As for the bones of Joseph, which the people brought up from Egypt, they buried them at Shechem in the piece of land that Jacob bought for the sons, from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of money. We should be saying, finally, he made it. This Joseph guy finally got laid to rest where he had asked to be put. We see Joseph's great faith that even though it wasn't right or wrong to be buried in Egypt or Canaan or wherever, we see him desire to be, to be brought to Canaan. And so he was so confident that God would bring them to that land that he told his family to bring his bones there. I mean, he's dead and gone. He's long gone. It's not like he's hanging out in his bones. He's waiting to get there. He's way gone. But it was important to do this. So by showing how much he trusted that God would take them into the promised land. This does not preach the, the faith of Joseph alone, although we can learn from that. Joshua 24 actually preaches the faithfulness of Yahweh to bring them there. It wasn't Joseph's faith that somehow brought his bones there. It was God's faithfulness to his promise to Abraham to bring the people out of Egypt, and they took his bones there. It's, a, it's preaching, actually, the incredible faithfulness of Yahweh. When we read verse 32, we understand that our author is showing us that an era is coming to an end, and it's not just the conquest era. By slipping Joseph in here, we are getting a bigger picture. It's not just the ones who went across Jordan and conquered this land and a lot of the tribes. By putting Joseph here, laid to rest in this place, we're seeing this is the completion of all the promises that were made to Abraham. Now we're talking about something that's not maybe, I don't know, 20, 30 years, something like that. We're talking about five to 600 years ago. These promises were made to Abraham. And now by seeing this here at this burial notice, we're recognizing that not only is the conquest coming to a close, but all has been completed from what Abraham was promised here. Now there are loose ends that of course as we read the rest of the Bible that we'll start picking up. But at this point we realize there has come to some sort of completion. So it's not just a 400-year-old promise. Uh, again, more like a five or 600-year-old promise. And they were watching as God was bringing to fruition all of his promises that he had made. And Joseph gets his burial plot in the land of Canaan. God had been faithful to all the generations that he had promised these things to. Let me point out one more thing. There's a fourth thing here. Let me just point out Israel's inheritance is secured, finally. The last thing I want to, to show you here really quickly about this text is all three of these men are buried in the land of Canaan. Now that just seems like, okay, it's just a historical piece of evidence. That, that's great. No, no, no. More than that, notice that all three of these men are buried on land that is their inheritance or land that is given to them in the case of Eliezer. Look at verse 30, speaking of Joshua. And they buried him in his own inheritance. Look at verse 32, speaking to where jo Joseph was buried. He was buried at Shechem. Now skip to the end. It became an inheritance of the descendants of Joseph. Look at verse 33, speaking to Eliezer. They buried him at Gibeah, the town of Phinehas' son, which had been given him. As we view this burial notice here, we should not miss the touch of finality or completion when it comes to the people of Israel inheriting the land that God promised that they would. 
Joshua had led them up to their inheritance. He had allotted their inheritance, but now in his death, he actually shows that that was really theirs. They owned it. Notice that Joshua and Eliezer don't buy burial plots. They own them. They are theirs. They own this land by gift of Yahweh. These men are buried in their own territory, in places that are finally dominated by peace and rest from the war because God's promises have come true. Here at the close of Joshua, we see that Israel's inheritance has been secured. And all of these things, these four different things we just noticed, they're important details to point to one more question that we ought to ask as the reader. Why is this burial notice included in the book of Joshua? What's the point? Why is he trying to do this as we put these pieces together? I got two. One is a little bit broad. The first one's called a biblical theological point. That's just a fancy way of saying it goes way past the boundaries of Joshua and it has a broader significance that all of us should recognize. Joshua and Eliezer are added to a growing list of guys that died. Um, Sad to say, but just like all the other great leaders before them, they end up dead. They're dead. Now, it seems like very normal to us, unfortunately. We're excited to see the, you know, the, the promises that are made to Abraham being fulfilled, but we want to ask, what about the promises made to Adam? Look, let's go even further back. Those ones aren't being met here, it doesn't seem like. When would one come who would crush the head of the serpent? You know, not as a good guy who does a lot of good things but then dies like everybody else. At the end of Joshua, especially as the New Testament saints here, we are left with the desire for a leader like Joshua to continue on, one to come and keep us covenantly faithful like he did, one that would come even more so and crush the head of the serpent. We long for a leader who will outlast an era because all the rest of them have not. We long for a leader who will not succumb to death. The book of Genesis closes with the death of Jacob and Joseph. The book of Deuteronomy closes with the death of Moses. Now the book of Joshua closes with the death of Joshua and Eliezer. Isn't there any book that closes with someone who doesn't die? Now you know where I'm going. How about the account and story of our Lord Jesus? But you say, Jesus died, didn't he? Yes, you'd be right. He did die, praise God. But through the death of Jesus, we see one who is not defeated by death, who is not and could not be held by death, but rather one who overcomes death and rises again to live forevermore and be king of the world. You know what the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John have in common? They all end with the conquering king who has defeated the grave, not someone who just gets a burial notice. Not one who goes the way of the earth like a, you know, a wonderful burial notice that we saw here today in Joshua. The burial notice of Joshua and Eliezer point us to the one whose burial notice becomes obsolete because he's not dead anymore. Jesus is alive and he reigns as our king and leader. And because of this, there is no leader who deserves our allegiance. I think this is one of the points that this passage should make for us as a New Testament believer. But this leads us to another one, what I think is the main point of this passage. It's a theological point. Surprise, surprise. It's a point that teaches us about God. Everything in this passage points to God. Even though it's barely stated here at the end of Joshua, 
Each of these things that we looked at reveal that God is faithful to fulfill his promises to this generation and every generation since Abraham. For instance, the success in the conquest. Who gave them the success? Well, the servanthood of Joshua being the servant of the Lord and Israel serving them properly. Who are they serving? Their title is pointing to something else. Or how about faithfulness of, you know, to, to Joshua to, and, and the previous generations and all these things coming to fruition? Who came through for Joseph? Who was the one that accomplished the 500-year promise? Joshua? No. How about in these, this inheritance of Israel that's been secured now that we see through this? Who gave them the inheritance? We can see that even through this burial notice, that everything is pointing us to the God who has been faithful. But I also said that there was one little phrase that tells us about God here, kind of barely, but here it is. There's something else. What is it? It's kind of indirect, but I think it's worth our noticing. Look at verse 31. The point is about Israel serving the Lord, which is good, um, but it gives us an idea of why they serve the Lord. Listen and see if you can catch it at the end. Verse 31, Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel. Even here, the one statement that we find about the Lord is pointing us to something that's greater than the people. It's that the Lord himself had done the work. Even in this burial notice, we are hearing an underlying, foundational, consistent truth that the Lord God of Israel is a faithful God who keeps promises, and therefore, he can be trusted. Now, that sounds good. It sounds like something that we can get behind. But let's talk about it more, you and me here in the church, modern-day America. Let's ask the question, can we really trust God? Do we need, like jurors, the proof to find him faithful? If so, guys, here it is. We see this. Yahweh is faithful. The text doesn't even have to say God was faithful. Everything about it declares this. He isn't even, it isn't even Joshua's testimony anymore. He's dead and gone. It's the document after his death telling us the same story. This obituary stands as a legal documentation proving that the conquest is over and God's people are occupying the land. We are watching Joshua and Eliezer be laid to rest in the conquered land of Canaan in their own inheritance where peace and rest have finally come to God's people, just as he promised. Not only that, but the bones of Joseph have arrived at their final destination. Over 400 years have passed, and we're finally getting the legal report that shows that Joseph's bones made it to their burial grounds. It's here that we will rest. It's here that he will rest with his people, showing God, the one that had made that promise to his great-grandfather Abraham, that God had faithfully fulfilled the promises to bring Israel to Canaan and give them rest. So again, I ask the question, can you and I trust God? Will he really come through on all of his promises? I mean, these aren't really the promises that we are looking at. Ours are very different promises. Is it really true that if we have Jesus Christ, then God is for us? Can Christians be confident that God will deliver on all of his promises? What about when circumstances in your own life look grim? What about in the midst of persecution? 
What about when your life is hard and everything about it, the pain, the struggle, all of it points to something that doesn't seem like a very well-fulfilled promise? Some of you have lived harder lives than I will ever know. And you may have the right to ask, is it true that even in my circumstances, God is really for me? Because it doesn't seem like it. How can you answer that logically when all the evidence that you can see with your own two eyes, all the evidence of your life points away from what we think a good God should do? Cancer. Depression. Death. Sickness. Pain. Financial struggle. Loneliness. Anxiety. Our passage today gives us the glorious truth that God is in control of all of it and over all of time. And he will bring his promises to fruition in his timing. Long after Joseph was dead, long after Abraham was dead. Consider that. They didn't see the promises of God come true. He promised Abraham many offspring. Here we are in Canaan, many offspring. He promised Abraham rest. Here we are. Joshua, the great military commander, has died having finished the work of the conquest and given Israel rest. God promised Abraham land, and here we are in the land of Canaan, burying Joshua and Eliezer, and even Joseph in their inheritance, the land that God had given to them. Could Israel really trust God? I mean, Abraham didn't see all of God's promises fulfilled. Joseph didn't even see all of God's promises fulfilled. Moses, the great servant of the Lord, he didn't even see all the promises of God fulfilled. And yet, none of them trusted God in vain. Their faith was rewarded because he was true. They believed God's word and trusted him fully, and God did not disappoint. He fulfilled his promises. And so we ask in 2019, can we really trust God? Apostle Paul gives us a little bit more of a recent answer, Romans 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is, who is it to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long for we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation, because there's one that's over all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Can we really trust this God? Brother and sisters, Hold fast to Jesus Christ, our Lord. He can be trusted. He will deliver on every one of his promises, whether you see it with your eyes or not. 
to those of you, at least in this life, to those of you who do not recognize the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior and King, I can understand that what you see around you, what you think and what you hear and the reasons that makes it so difficult makes you doubt. I get it. You wonder, with my eyes I see these things, but can he really be trusted? It doesn't look like it to me. Maybe you're hurt. Maybe you're a doubter. Maybe you're a struggler that just kind of wants to hear about God, but how can God really be true if what I see all around me seems to tell me something else? Can I tell you one thing? I want you to hear from the God of Abraham that he will fulfill every one of his promises. This king can be trusted. He has shown himself to be true. And despite our little brains and our very short experience here in the world, he is always true. And although we think we know what we're talking about, he knows what he's talking about. He has seen it from the beginning to the end. And his promises are sure. And he has proven even here today that he is faithful. Friend, if I can encourage you to repent of your sin and trust the Lord Jesus as king over all creation, he will bring all of his promises to fruition. The one who can save your soul and give you true life, eternal life, has made you, if you will trust him alone, a subject in the kingdom of heaven. Joshua has told us that God is faithful throughout his whole life. We know that message already. But here, throughout the book, not only have we learned it, but now that we get to this burial notice, we realize after he's dead and gone that even his burial notice proclaims the faithfulness of God. So Christian or unbeliever, I tell you, this God can be trusted. Let's pray together. Dear Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its constant work in our life. We ask that we would submit our hearts to it and that you would work. Lord, we want to be those that not just give you part of our hearts. As we've already learned, Joshua's shown us that we would choose Yahweh, not other little gods. But even as we see here today, you can be trusted. You have proven yourself. Like the evidence in the case, that God, overwhelmingly so, you are faithful. I pray that you would continue to draw our hearts to trust you. We would not worship other things or think that there are other narratives in this world that make sense over God's. May we trust you and you alone in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For further sermons on Joshua and for more information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.